episode 26. We've got Jonathan Dick from Steelbook Brains on board this time. I met Jonathan a few months ago uh, while doing an interview for his website called Steel for Brains. Um, he turned out to be a really cool guy. We had a lot of common interests, not the least of which is, uh, you know, metal music, but um, other stuff such as sacred geometry, um, Freemasons, all kinds of uh, cult stuff like that, the hidden knowledge and uh, sort of the deep thoughts that most of us have, or most of us have, and sort of neglect to think about. So anyway, this is a really great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Good morning to you, man. How's it going out there? Pretty good. Did you, uh, you have a good holiday? I had a pretty good holiday. Uh, just, you know, stressful and all that, all that good stuff. I uh, actually just... Um, Paid a hospital visit. I had a student, uh, unfortunately, uh, a former student passed away yesterday in a car accident. So I've been having to go back and forth with all that uh, since late last night to early this morning. So. Oh wow, it's horrible. Yeah, that's just kids. If if I said it, it was the first time I've had to deal with that, I'd be lying. And that's, you know, just part of the deal when you start teaching high schoolers and then of course now I'm teaching college, but it's just, you know, it's stressful and it, it, it's crap. So the, um, in, in a weird synchronicity, uh, the apartment across from where my girlfriend lives in her building, uh, that there's a woman in that apartment who just got killed in a, a vehicle, um, automotive accident as well. And, uh, when you mentioned that a student of yours got killed in a, in a you know, car accident, it was like, this bizarre, like synchronous sort of tragedy, you know, it's just, oh, wow. sometimes that stuff lines up and it's like real creepy, you know? Oh God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've, I've seen that uh, so many times uh, just in my short life, man, it's just odd how things, I guess the, the linear state of the universe, you know, it's, um, kind of, you know, what we've been discussing. I mean, you know, it's just, uh, interesting to see how that all lines up and even, even in negative ways. Yeah. Uh, how the universe kind of lines up with itself. But, um, well, just um, real brief, uh, you and I met uh, basically through uh, your website, Steel for Brains, when I did an interview with you, and that's how we start, you know, personal relationships sort of started. And uh, at the time, I wasn't aware of your career in education as well as all the writing that you do and also your um, involvement with the Masons. So, um, so can you like, uh, just give like a quick rundown of, um, you know, the website starting off with, uh, you know, uh, steel for brains and like what sort of motivated you to do that? Sure. Um, you know, back in, uh, March actually, and this is kind of an odd story, but, um, my, uh, two year old daughter, uh, she wasn't two at the time, but my, my daughter actually, uh, came down with a horrible case of viral pneumonia and uh, also a case of viral uh, edema, which is a, a, a respiratory issue and uh, went to very, happened very quickly and had to go to the hospital with her. And I spent 11 nights with her in the intensive care unit here at the local children's hospital. And um, I know it's kind of an odd way to start out and say this is, that has very much to do with the site, but um, I, I, it was one of those points in your life where you look for solace and you look for something something to kind of bring you uh, 
peace and something to bring you hope. And I, uh, you know, I had a lot of recommendations. I think, you know, whenever you go through a tragedy or whenever you're going through trying times, people tend to offer all sorts of solutions for you to make it through. And, and to be honest with you, Mike, the, the one thing that I found myself constantly going back to was uh, heavy metal music. Um, I would basically sit there with my iPod, and I had an earbud in my ear, and I would have one in hers, and uh, we would basically lay there in her little crib, and she would l- listen uh, to that with me because they always listen to uh, the music that their dads listen to and stuff. And, of course. And it really it brought me peace, and it brought me kind of kind of a you know everything's going to be okay. It, it, there, there was a uh, there was a there was a calming effect with it, and uh, I listened to whole discographies by my favorite bands because that's all I had to do. I didn't want to do anything else. I didn't want to write. I didn't want to think. At the time, I was a full time high school teacher, and it was just it was something that I I, I just honestly found um, comfort in. And um, immediately thereafter, and thankfully she made it out and everything. It was a, an absolute miracle she made it out. But. Uh, um, I started doing a lot of um, more reading of reviews and, and, and just reading into the history of, the, of course, I've listened to heavy metal my whole life, but I started reading more into the, the genre itself and uh, its origins and, and uh, just, I guess, digging deeper. And as I did that, uh, I discovered what I felt was a lack of, um, I guess, uh, cogent writing on the topic and and I think a lot of what I saw and not to you know not to sound pretentious or anything at all but a lot of what I saw from a journalistic perspective and covering metal was so um, just one dimensional and flat and I felt that a lot of it was not really doing the genre justice I felt that people were focusing um, kind of they, they were going back to the, the the image and not really the, the message and not really the, um, the underlying consciousness of the music itself. And I, and I felt and still feel very strongly that, uh, no other genre, uh, really encapsulates, um, so much, uh, the human experience, uh, like the metal genre does. And when I say the metal genre, of course, I mean, you know, that covers the whole litany of things, but that's, uh, that was really the whole purpose of still for brains. And I, and I wanted to introduce kind of a, um, uh, kind of a higher level thinking process into the way we not just uh, approach the way we think about the genre, but also the way we approach the artists who are who are uh, making this music, uh, the uh, the musicians, the bands, producers, other writers, uh, thinkers. You know, in my mind, I didn't I didn't just want to know uh, what the latest album by whoever was. I wanted to know what inspired them to write those lyrics, inspired them to write those songs, and just and, and dig deeper and find out exactly the emotional uh, spectrum that was kind of covered uh, when those people and when and when people write their music. It, it's it, it was and still is very fascinating to me. Yeah, it's, it's definitely apparent in the work that you've done so far. And I also tend to agree with you that um, a lot of times you read reviews and it really is more a game of this sounds like this band and this is, if you like this, you'll like that. And instead of actually trying to describe your emotional response to the music. And uh, that's always been my biggest criticism of rock journalism or music journalism is the sort of lack of imagination that people seem to have um, when it comes to describing things or, you know, there's just like this real surface level analysis of the music. And then, you know, but when you stop and think about it, uh, most of these bands have taken about two years or so to write and produce, you know, do the artwork um, and all that sort of stuff before you actually have 
the final version in your hands. And just to reduce the whole thing down to like a three paragraph review is just sort of um, inadequate in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think um, just uh, it's kind of funny. You know, I, I've, I mean, my, my, I'm sorry, my neighbor upstairs is vacuuming, so I can't hear anything, man. Um, but uh, the, the thing about it is, it's like when I would read, uh, and there's a lot of great, there's a lot of great journalism out there. Um, one, one thing that that fascinated me, and one thing I, I think I even brought up in our interview, and I've brought up in several interviews, was and is uh, the, the the fact that. Others, uh, other press outlets um, that normally throughout the years have not covered the metal genre all of a sudden became very interested in it. And one thing that I personally try to avoid whenever I write a review, and I'm not an expert at all, and I, you know, when I try to write a review or when I do an interview, I really, just as you said, I, I, it's always bugged me and always irked me that there's it's they always seem to be very derivative and they always seem to kind of say, like you said, you know, that it sounds like this band, it sounds like that band. And to me, that's just laziness. It's, it's laziness on the part of the listener. It's laziness for writing because you just need extra filler. So instead of saying that, you know, instead of coming up with an actual point of reference for a sound, you just name, you know, five other bands and then you're like, okay, well, we're set. Now people will know to buy this album or now people will have a, a point of reference. And, and in my mind, uh, that makes a lazy listener. And I try to come into every album, and that includes uh, with a band that's had you know five, six previous releases. Uh, I try to view each one of those as its own separate piece, absent from any other thing that the artist has done. And, and that's that's a difficult thing to do because I think we're geared as a society to constantly have those uh, that that kind of uh, lazy. Um, Set, mindset where we look back and we say, "Oh, this sounds like this. Uh, oh, this sounds like their first album, or this sounds like this band." And and I didn't, and I still don't ever want to do that. And it's it is very difficult. And that, and that to me was another big part of of Still for Brand and is is just trying to make it something that's um, I guess you know this is going to sound very cliche, but something that's just different, something that's a little uh, I guess fresher to read and maybe maybe offers a, a different perspective than uh, most things. When did you start the uh, site? Like, when was it actually launched? Uh, the site was launched, um, and I'll preface that by saying this. I know a precisely fuck all about uh, writing for as far as sites, as far as web writing. I know nothing. So yeah. I had to find the most easiest, user-friendly um, uh, plat uh, platform, and that was uh, Tumblr. And uh, yeah. I went... Uh, the site was launched in early August. Uh, my first interview was with uh, the band Paul Bear, and that was at the end of July. And uh, I had, I think I spent the entire month of June, uh, late June to early July, just emailing every possible. And honestly, I didn't have a Facebook account before then, but I, I, I got on Facebook and just started looking at contacts and just, yeah, just emailing and Facebook messaging every band I, that I loved, that the music that I loved. And I didn't base on popularity or anything like that. I was just like, okay, I like this band. I'm going to talk to them. I like this band, you know? And so it was, it was, it was a crapshoot because I had no idea what I was doing uh, going into it and still don't. And, and just kind of had this idea, Hey, if they'll, if they'll respond back, then, you know, I'm, I'm in the game and I can, you know, I can get a chat in and we can talk about the things that I want to talk about. And hopefully they do too. Well, that's the approach that <clears throat> some of my favorite, you know, musicians, artists, writers, whatever. That's the approach that I think 
that's kind of like the winning approach in some ways is just jumping in and doing it. Um, you know what I mean? You know, guys like Henry Rollins and, you know, didn't know anything about singing or writing or anything. He just, through sheer effort and will, just put forth, um, so, you know, a really good, solid effort. And I think that's how you get success. And as far as Tumblr goes, I mean, that's what uh, Everything Went Black Media is based on a Tumblr account, too. And I think that that platform is so flexible that a lot of people use that specifically for the kinds of things that you and I are doing. You know, because it can, yeah. it's it's flexible. You have photo, you got text. There's um, you know, audio components you can post through it, and you know, podcasting, and it's just a really good way um, to combine sort of, you know, the blogging platform of say WordPress with the social aspect of say Facebook. Because you know, with with Tumblr, you can get, you know, followers and follow other people, and you know, the community aspect I think okay. is really good too. So yeah, I mean that's I think even you know that that's there's nothing like you know amateur about using Tumblr. I think that's a great you know platform for for this type of work. Um, so as far as um, as far as like your you know your career in education, I mean how what what subjects do you teach, and you know where did you get your your degrees and that sort of stuff? Well, uh, I went to uh, the University of Alabama Birmingham for my undergrad. Uh, which I, uh, through some, through some uh, miracle, made it completely through um, my undergrad year. So I wasn't exactly uh, focused on schooling, but I got undergrad in uh, English um, and uh, with a minor in theater. And uh, then I immediately, uh, I actually was planning on going to law school, uh, but and even took the LSAT, got accepted into several law schools, and I honestly decided after one day of subbing a sixth grade class that I wanted to teach and uh, much to my parents chagrin, they were not real big even though my mom's a teacher but uh, I um, I went and got a, went to the fifth year program here at UAB and got my master's in secondary education and uh, then two years later I went and got my other master's from Alabama um, in, um, in English so it, it's kind of uh, it, it, I guess I kept coming back to my roots, uh, so to speak, because I, you know, I, my whole life, I've always, I've always been an, just a voracious reader. Uh, just anything and everything I could get my hands on. I think that has a lot to do with my, my mom, the English teacher, and uh, we. I grew up in a, a fundamentalist Christian household, and uh, we had a TV and we had cable, but we had rules uh, such as, you know, for every minute, and this is no joke, for every minute of television we wanted to watch, we had to read a page in the book. And uh, so I, I love television, and I also love books. So I would uh, read as as many damn books as I could just to watch TV. And um, come to find out, I ended up enjoying the books a lot more than I did, you know, the, the television. And that, I, you know, I, I owe a lot of that to my mom. And uh, but I, I just that kind of got me into the uh, the process of wanting to teach. And um, I studied mythology. I also studied um, uh, African American liter- uh, literature. Uh, just uh, and that kind of led me to a lot of uh, studying of Egyptology and things of that nature, and just uh, uh, even to this day, like I said, I, I'm a I'm a voracious reader. Even if it's crap, I, I like to just just kind of dive in and just see uh, just see what people have to say and see. I kind of uh, it goes back to the uh, not so much the finished product, but the process uh, of the art has always fascinated me. I mean, I, I think. Um, if you look at somebody like Jackson Pollock uh, and you look at you know one of his uh, incredible paintings, the painting itself obviously is a masterpiece. But I guess to me, the more interesting aspect is how he got there, 
And uh, I, I guess the uh, the process for me has just always been just incredibly fascinating. And that's that's why I wanted to teach and because I wanted to kind of take students on that journey and give them the background as to why these authors or how these authors got to uh, these points and how what led them to write about these incredible stories and these incredible characters. Um, so that, that was basically it for me. And it's a huge passion of mine. And then the uh, the connection to the Masons was that through uh, you know family or did you uh, sort of arrive at that on your own? Well, um, it's interesting you said my uh, my uncle uh, William Luther was actually a um, uh, he was a thirty second degree Mason in Louisiana at the time of his death in uh, two thousand and four. He was one of the highest ranking Freemasons in Louisiana. Um, I remember now my dad was not a Freemason and because of my dad's uh, religious beliefs, he never really, uh, became a Freemason, but, um, I, I would stay with my uncle, uh, at, on, in summers just growing up and he had all these symbols hanging around his house. He had, uh, just a, uh, just a myriad of books and I was just immersed in it just from a very early age. And, uh, the interesting thing about him and the thing that fascinated me about him, uh, even to this day, is that for somebody that dropped out of school in the seventh grade, he was, uh, to this day, uh, the one of the smartest individuals I've ever met. Uh, just incredibly intelligent, incredibly well-read, uh, knew Latin, knew French, knew German, uh, spoke English. I mean, obviously, and uh, he was always constantly ready to give me any answer to the questions I had. And that was a, that was a big thing to me. And he was he always had the statement of, you know, um, he would always tell me, you know, seek the light. Seek the light. Uh, seek your own light. And it was something that I kind of took to heart, and I never knew what he meant, but it was, you know, it kind of went back to the, you know, the uh, the quote, you know, uh, think for yourself, question authority, you know, by, uh, I think, was that Timothy Leary? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. And, uh, you know, that that kind of, it just really propelled me to kind of, um, to, seek, to seek my own light and to seek knowledge, and that was something I was constantly fascinated with uh, because my uncle, he just... You know, I, it, I honestly, it, it's very pedantic, but it was just those images, those symbols on, that he had all around his house was uh, was kind of the, um, uh, the 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 point for me, uh, that I, the, the catalyst for me to kind of jump into it and to be really, uh, really wanting to pursue that uh, as part of uh, my life. Now, um, a lot of people don't really understand the Masons. You know, there's, there's a lot of, like, sort of mysterious... Uh, you know, mystery around, around the whole organization. And also I think some people are, are under the assumption that there is a uh, religious component to being a Mason. And, um, you know, one of the things you said was that your, your father, because of his religious beliefs was sort of at odds with, uh, you know, the Masonic uh, organization. So, so can you clarify that? Like, um, just kind of, you know, maybe describe some of those, uh, you know, to put to rest some of those misunderstandings, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think it kind of depends on where you are, Mike. I mean, you know, it, um, <laughs> here in the South, it, it's very interesting. Uh, it just the, the Freemasonry in the South is a very idealized, uh, concept. Uh, if you have somebody that's, uh, such as my father, like I said, I grew up a fundamentalist Christian. He's a you know, Southern Baptist. Um, there's a verse in the New Testament that says, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers, um, which basically is interpreted by many, many here in the Bible Belt as uh, you don't take an oath with another man that you don't know is a uh, Christian. Um, 
And in Freemasonry, um, and I'll, I'll have to be careful here, but in Freemasonry, one of the um, initiation rites uh, is a pledge to a supreme being. Um, now, the, here's where it gets kind of gray. And if you're in the South, they will tell you that Freemasonry is born out of Christianity. Um, however, uh, if you do even the most minimalist amount of uh, re- or the minimal amount of research, you will find that the origins of Freemasonry actually aren't Christian at all. Um, they're, in fact, they're very hard to pinpoint, which kind of makes the organization uh, that much more interesting. Uh, it's uh, if you. A lot of people in the South also, you, there, there's two factions. You get the ones that are incredibly religious, and they say that it's a very religious uh, organization, um, and, you know, it's all about Christianity. And then you have the flip side of that, which is the, the ironic side, and they say that, no, Freemasonry is actually the devil in disguise. Uh, there's a guy that that writes tracks. He's written uh, Christian tracks since the late 70s. His name's Jack Chick. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but... Uh, he, uh, he writes some of the most incendiary, uh, just he attacks everybody from gays to, I mean, to even blacks, everything. Um, and he, and he's, his tracks get at churches, uh, which is just dumbfounding. But he, um, he wrote a uh, little track on Freemasonry back in the 80s and basically said that it was an organization that had its roots in uh, Satanism and had its roots in, in the occult. Um, the funny part about that is that it does have roots in the occult, and it does have roots in those things which are considered um, to be uh, of, if, to say, you know, kind of the, the dark side of things, the left-hand path, if you will. Um, but when I say that, you have to you have to understand that when people look at Freemasonry, they're looking at it in one of those two ways. They're either seeing it as an organization of a bunch of now I'm talking from the South here. They're they're looking at the organization of a bunch of good old white boys who are together, you know, uh, drinking beers and talking about the latest football game, or they look at it as an organization of people in uh, robes who are uh, sacrificing you know goats to Satan or lambs to Satan or things like that. And to to put to bed the rumors. Uh, Freemasons don't control the world. Uh, we, uh, we're not as, as involved in politics as a lot of people want to believe. Now, we were, uh, for many years, heavily involved in politics. Um, if you, and you can, you can get that information just, uh, just by doing research. If you look at uh, many of our presidents have been Freemasons. Um, many members of Congress right now are Freemasons. Uh, many members of the Senate. Uh, but... There, there are so many, it's splintered off. And if you want to look at it, even from a musical perspective, uh, it, it's a lot like uh, the, the, the rock genre, the metal genre. Uh, what started out as kind of a singular sound has now splintered off into several different factions. You have, you have regular lodges, uh, which are called grand lodges, and you also have uh, clandestine lodges. Uh, clandestine lodges are actually those that kind of will employ, and I'm speaking solely here from the, the South as well, um, but even uh, around the world, uh, they will employ more of the Eastern uh, mysticism into their rituals. Uh, they don't just read the Bible, and they don't just read the, the rites of the Masonic Lodge. They also read things by writers like Albert Pike um, and things of that nature. So it's it kind of depends. There's 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 a lot of people that you know that buy into the whole concept that you know Freemasons are just uh, dead in the water. It's a dying organization. Uh, when in actuality, our membership is as strong as it's ever been. We just uh, we honestly 
we don't put it out there as much as we used to. And I, I think um, when you have somebody like Dan Brown uh, write a book uh, called The Lost Symbol, a lot of people read that and they're like, oh, my God, you know, the, the Freemasons, they're, they're involved in every facet of society and every organization. And that's simply not true. Um, but uh, they're, they're, some, of the, some of the most outrageous rumors, honestly, just the, our good rule of thumb, if it sounds outrageous, chances are it's, it's precisely that and nothing more. There's not a lot of um, substance to it. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, there's paintings of, like, our founding fathers in this country with, you know, Masonic symbols and, you know, George Washington specifically. I mean, all, I mean when this country was founded, most – you know, my my perception is that most of the founding members of the United States were Masons. And, um, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, definitely there was a component of the organization that was pretty heavily involved in the formation of this country, you know. And even if you look at our money, like the dollar bill, there's, there's tons of Masonic imagery on that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, um, the other thing, one of my concepts, and I know very little about – um, Freemasonry, like I know, I have like a peripheral knowledge of it. Uh, I think that the Christian angle and sort of, you know, you mentioned Eastern, the more of an Eastern angle to this to this whole thing is even, even Christianity itself is sort of based on ideas that predate Christianity. You know, it's more of like an interpretation of maybe more pagan ideas, and yeah. um, you know, I feel like that that sort of ties into what we were, you know, the whole Masonic organization too, because it, at the, at the fundamentally it has to do with building, right? Mm -hmm. And like, you know, sort of architecture and things like that. Absolutely. You know, and, and you mentioned uh, Egyptology earlier on in one of your interests. And to me, at least there's been sort of a connection between Freemasonry and, you know, Egypt. I mean, is that completely off the base or am I like, you know, like no. on, onto something? No, I, you're, you're definitely onto something. And, and it's kind of, um, when you look at what the early writers of Freemasonry had to say in regards uh, to things like architecture and things like geometry, um, one, one glaring mistake that a lot of people make, and if, if you, and I don't know if you saw when I was up in New York or not, uh, but I, you know, I had the ring, uh, Freemason ring, and, yeah. and you, you obviously see the symbol, the G in the middle. Um, so many even in the Freemason sect will say, oh, oh, that G stands for God. It doesn't. It stands for geometry. Um, and people, and that's, it's kind of an interesting thing to hear people say. But, you know, when you look at something such as Freemasonry that's been around, you know, kind of, you, you'll, you'll get into an argument with, you know, that's a big argument when you go to a lodge or anything like that. When, when did we first arrive? When did, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg kind of thing. But, um, but when you look at the origins of, of any faction of a uh, belief system or any faction of even science, uh, the thing that predates it will 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 undoubtedly be mimicked or be mirrored in what it you know what it gives birth to. And when you look at what the Egyptians did, uh, when you when you see the architecture of things like the pyramid, things like the uh, the Sphinx, uh, even the um, the setup of the inside of the tombs and different things like that. There's so much just absolutely perfect symmetry and geometry in everything that they did. Um, and when you have the, uh, the gentleman that started Freemasonry, they looked at things like this and they saw what's, uh, what's called the pattern. They saw the right angle. Uh, and a lot of times you'll hear that. And even in ritualistic, um, 
traditions and rituals that are performed by Freemasons, uh, literally, and when I say this, I mean it, literally everything is based, even the way we walk is uh, based on angles and based on walking from point to point and how things are formulated. Uh, when you when you take into account the ideas, I mean, you look at something like Stonehenge, you look at something like even the heads on Easter Island, um, and, and all these things, you know, if you watch, you know, A&E or anything like the National Geographic, and they're talking about, you know, the, the mysteries of the, of the world, uh, you can go, you can pull back even further and just look at the, the cosmos and look at the universe. And uh, there's so many things like uh, that even um, uh, have been spoken of for thousands of years that scientists are just now saying, they're like, oh, my God, you know, there's an actual structure and an order to the chaos um, Free, Freemasons' earliest writers and earliest thinkers saw that. Uh, it wasn't news to them. They just simply read uh, what people like the Egyptians and people like the Sumerians had already seen. Uh, if you look back at uh, one of the earliest religions or one of the earliest known religions, Zoroastrianism, right. uh, that itself has huge aspects of geometry, the idea of the pyramid, the sun, and the moon. Uh, when you when you look at you know, one of my favorite films, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey, and you see Kubrick's opening shot of that, that is, you're looking at, you know, uh, sacred geometry. You're looking at something that is uh, symmetrical, and it's something that the earliest known civilization saw. They saw an order and a balance to things, uh, just as, as we discussed earlier with the, with the deaths, you know, that we both experienced just here recently, you know, in our, in our lives, you know. There's some symmetry. There's some kind of order in in the universal experience, and that's something that the Freemasons saw. And basically, they just began to write about it, and they wanted to have discussions about it. That was the the whole inception of Freemasonry was to basically free the mind. And it was something uh, when you look at uh, the, even the word itself, Freemasons, they're builders. Uh, they, they, the idea of architecture is, is, is not just a term that is meant to be taken literally, but it's also meant to be taken figuratively and, and on a spiritual level as well. It's, it's one that, that explores the depths of um, the, the, the linear uh, knowledge that we have as human beings in our experience and consciousness. Yeah, you know, my background is, is in engineering. Um, you know, I got a, that's my study when I went to college. And, uh, you know, one, some of the, as far as data collection goes, one of the key things, one of the first steps is to look at the data and try to find recurring patterns and, you know, maxes and minimums and, you know, medians and things like that. Um, and also in your, in your last essay that just went up that, you know, the music, you know, heavy metal and, and sacred geometry, we did, you know, you talked about patterns just in, in music itself, like, you know, four, four, like time signatures and things like that. And I think in general, uh, the human mind is really trying to make sort of, um, you know, sense out of all the stimulus that we're taking in and sort of construct models of these, uh, of our reality. Um, so, I mean, so it stands to reason that an organization like the Freemasons would arise, you know, and, and like dating back to like, you know, the Assyrians and the Sumerian and Egyptian times, you know, in my opinion, you know, probably one of the earliest civilizations to have analytical thought and try to describe their environment. So, you know, what, what better way to try to describe the environment than to try to figure out patterns and, and, uh, you know, either, even, even in the physical world and then extrapolate that 
and try to figure out and make projections into the future about what might happen, you know, just based on these patterns. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's, that's the whole thing, you know, when, when, when people try to, you know, they bring God in the conversation or they'll bring, you know, that, uh, you know, the concept of a, of a higher, you know, supernatural being into the conversation, the, the, the problem with that ultimately is, is that it goes back to what I said earlier. You know, it's that's lazy thinking. Um, if you simply look, like you said, there, there's patterns. There's patterns in every single aspect of our existence. Every single, um, uh, every single step we take, um, every day, just uh, just. Just from the very the first breath we take as human beings, even even if you go back to you know conception, you know there's there's so much that goes into it that is so petitioned by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, obviously, I went to English because I sucked at math, but you know I, the the concept here is that you know. Just as you said, the Freemasons saw what the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Sumerians, and so many other you know ancient uh, civilizations had done. Those civilizations saw what earlier civilizations had done, and basically, it's a testament to human evolution. It's a it's a testament to the evolution of the mind. It's a testament to the evolution of the consciousness. Uh, just like you said, you know, one of the simplest um, time signatures is four four. You know, and that's a, a, I mean, probably somebody with a base level intelligence can get 4-4 timing. Uh, uh, but when you start introducing uh, complex, uh, complex rhythms, uh, polyrhythms, different things like that, I mean, obviously sound itself, you know, is something physical. It's not, you know, something that's, you know, immaterial. It's something that physically moves you. It vibrates. It causes, uh, you know, it causes friction. Uh, they use sound to break walls. They use sound uh, almost in laser technology now. I mean, you know, it's just, it's very fascinating to see um, how uh, mathematics and the idea of, of what we're like, just as you said, like we're trying to understand these, these concepts. Um, and the human mind, it's, it's funny to me that, and, you know, tens of thousands of years of existence, uh, the way we are now, uh, we're just beginning to, we're at the very cusp of it. We have yet to even dive into the pool. And, uh, that's exciting to me because, you know, we're, we're, as we're constantly discovering new things and as technology grows and, and things of that nature, it seems like we're on the very cusp of something even grander than we could ever imagine. You know, and, 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 and it all goes back to the simplest things. And it all goes back to the very simple thing that everything is interconnected. Everything is very precise. Uh, there, in my mind, there are no mistakes. Uh, everything is exactly as it should be. And, and it seems, that may seem dismissive, but I think when you look at the grand scheme of the universe and how small we are in comparison to everything, at the ever-expanding universe, you know, uh, 27 mi uh, million uh, light years a second at this very moment expanding. I mean, you know, that's, that is, it's unfathomable. You can't even, you know, you can't even conceive that in our human consciousness. Not yet, that is. Well, I mean, there's also theories that uh, human civilization has been either at this point or past this point in, you know, technological development, uh, you know, thousands of years ago, and then through maybe some asteroid or, you know, man-made catastrophe or plunged back into, um, you know, technological obscurity, you know, and that's sort of, yeah, that's some of the things like, uh, you know, writers like Graham Hancock and whatnot, they hang their hat on that sort of concept, and they think about 
you know, ancient Egypt and, you know, the ability to, to execute constructions such as the pyramids and whatnot that, you know, some people think, oh, aliens gave them the information or aliens built the pyramids. But, you know, people like Graham Hancock are of the opinion that humans actually had this knowledge at that point and were able to, you know, to, to build these, uh, you know, these, these sort of, um, you know, almost, uh, supernatural feats of architecture and engineering. So, I mean, you know, that, that also be, you know, feeds into, uh, the cyclical nature of things as well. It's like maybe our role in the universe is to have this cycle of going back to zero again and then having another cycle, you know, which is like another, another way, I guess, to look at this. Well, you know, it goes back to the, you know, the, the age old cliche, but it's still true, you know, that we are our own worst enemy. And I think we, you know, it's the, I, I, I personally view Mike, uh, civilization and, and, and human beings as, as kind of an Ouroboros. You know, we, it's essentially the snake devouring itself and eventually it goes back around and, uh, we start over again. And I, you know, I, I've read Hancock stuff and it's hard, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you want to be like, oh, that makes so much sense. And then the other, the other aspect, you're like, well, what about this? And what about yeah. fascinating thing about it? And, and when you look, just speaking of the pyramids and, and like yourself, it's something that's just incredibly fascinating to me. I, um, and, and it comes up in topics and, and Freemasonry discussions and things like that. And just in discussions with friends, I mean, with all of our scientific advancements, I mean, you know, right now I'm talking to you, you're in, uh, you're in Brooklyn, right? Yep. In Brooklyn, New York. I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. We're talking. There's an immediacy to our conversation. It's you know, nothing is delayed. I'm not having to you know get on a you know on the wire and tap it out to you in Morse code. <laughs> I mean, there's so yeah, there's so much we can do right now, but we still don't understand. Truly, don't understand how they built the pyramids, and it's something that's so when you when you really think about it in the grand scheme of things, it is something that's very simplistic. And that's what Freemasonry comes back to when we have our discussions. It goes back to a very simple concept, and I think human beings tend to overcomplicate things. We tend to overanalyze, and we say, well, surely they had to have you know, some kind of alien technology or things like that. Honestly, I think uh, there's a lot to be said of kind of a, a, a primitive consciousness, a primitive uh, point of reference for them in their minds and understanding, well, this is the simplest and easiest way to do this. For them, they didn't have all the impediments, the social impediments, the cultural impediments that we have. They simply had a very narrowed focus of exactly what they wanted to execute, and they did it with just awe-inspiring wonder. And I, I think that speaks volumes to what we have uh, now in the 21st century civilization, I think one of the greatest detriments to the 21st century civilization is uh, the simple word distraction. Oh yeah, yep. Yeah. Just uh, you know, I, I think I think if you can push out of your mind, you know, so much of the stuff and simply narrow your focus, um, it, it's kind of, it's kind of ironic and, and seems almost paradoxical. But you know, if you simply narrow your focus, you broaden your vision. You know, and that, that, that to me is one of the, the greatest concepts a, a person can learn no matter what they're trying to execute, be it in art, be it in music, uh, writing, whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, Egyptology, man, that, that's something that's, it's, it's incredibly fascinating. And not only that, but just, uh, a lot of the structures, uh, a lot of the architectural just, uh, just behemoths. I mean, you look at the, the guy, and I, it escapes my mind now, the guy that built the, uh, 
This, uh, it's the Florida Stonehenge. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's down in Florida. He built it for his dead wife, and um, he basically modeled it after Stonehenge, and uh, they have no idea how he built it. Really? It's just a, yeah, it's just a regular guy. He's mm. a, he, a regular, you know, you know, not he's not a genius by any standard or anything like that. He's like, you know, like me or anybody else walking along the street, and he did this for his, you know, passed away wife as kind of a testament to her, as an homage to her. And they don't know how the guy did it. I haven't heard of this. No, it's it's fascinating. I'll have to, I'll email you the link, man. I, I have to like I said it. I can't believe I, my brain's kind of mush right now. But I, you know he, you know it's just things things of that nature. When you when you when your focus is so narrowed and you don't have all the distractions, to me that's when you create things that are inexplicable and things that are that can't be explained. I think the the human being is capable of some incredible things and I, I hate to see that uh, kind of tossed away in the name of a, a religion or a god or you know even aliens and I'm not saying aliens don't exist or things of that nature because I'm, I'm not that arrogant to say that because I, I don't know but I, I think that we don't give human beings enough credit and I, I, and I think we don't give uh, primitive cultures enough credit I mean these these guys, like you just said, I mean, they, they, they've done things that our greatest scientists who can split the atom still don't understand, you know, even at the basis levels of architecture. Well, the one thing that people seem to forget is that primitive cultures, you know, primitive civilizations, ancient civilizations, they're still humans. Like, they're still the modern man, basically. Yeah. You know, even though they existed thousands of years ago, it's still, it's still like the modern, the modern man, you know. Like he's, it's not like, you know, we were these Neanderthals. It's still the same brain capacity and they're still capable of doing, you know, they still have the capacity to do things that we do today. Exactly. You know, that's kind of like what people fall, you know, they forget that. Um, the thing with aliens and my, my opinion about aliens is, um, is that I believe that there is definitely, uh, you know, other, other, you know, beings out there. However, what I don't necessarily buy into is the typical flying saucer, uh, gray, you know, the grays with the big eyes and all that stuff. Um, right. I, I think that, if anything, an alien civilization will be so completely different than what we are, then we, you know, we may not, not even perceive them as being, um, you know, creatures. You know what I'm saying? Right. And that in some ways, maybe if they did reveal themselves to us, they might pick a certain form for us to, you know, identify them as. You know what I mean? Like, have you ever seen that movie Contact? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, you know, like when when Jodie Foster's character, you know, goes to that wormhole and she's, in, you know, interacting with a creature that she thinks is her father. And the creature's like, well, I'm revealing myself to you as this because this is what you can understand. You know, like if I appeared to you in my form, the form that I truly am in, you you wouldn't even be able to comprehend like what, you know, what what sort of creature I am. You know, so that that's sort of like you know my my take on it. You know, all these like UFO sightings and these ideas of you know alien cultures and whatnot, um, you know, interacting with us. I just think that it you know it would be completely alien to us. Like they wouldn't even be humanoid. You yeah. Know? Uh, but that's the thing. I mean, people, you know, to, to draw another analogy with, with music, Mike, I mean, you know, people, they, they want to view things from their own localized consciousness. And when you think about 
uh, and that's a great movie because, you know, I, I love uh, uh, Sagan, Carl Sagan, of yep. course, is just a, a man for everything. I mean, the guy was a brilliant thinker, and he, and he hit on a lot of wonderful stuff when it came to, like I said, you know, it goes back to the, just the, you know, the, the kiss, the keep it simple, stupid. You know, and, and a lot of times we, we overcomplicate things, and that's, that's one thing that, you know, a lot of times people that, you know, when you watch, you know, growing up, when I watched E.T. or when, you know, my dad forced us as young kids to watch Aliens, and even though we didn't want to because it scared the shit out of us, you know, but, you know, you know, when you watch that and you're like, my God, these are, you know, these are what aliens are going to be like. Well, as you, as you grow older and you, as you read more, as you understand, you know, the, the history of human civilization, just like you said, um, if there, you know, and, and I, I, I'm with you, I, I do believe there are, other, there are other life forms, but I think that for us here on Earth, we have certain degrees and levels of consciousness and understanding, certain dimensions of reality that we are able to comprehend. Um, our brains, as of now, can't, uh, our evolution has not kind of superseded past the point where we can understand, um, uh, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth level dimensions. And I think that if there are other civilizations uh, on other planets and in other, you know, um, uh, solar systems and, and things of that nature, uh, just as you said, I think there, their levels of consciousness, their levels of understanding, uh, even the dimensions, the, the dimensional planes that they exist on are going to be on a completely different level than we understand. And I think that goes back to um, uh, our human evolution. That's, that's the process of evolution. We are in constant search of the next step. We are in constant, um, we are in constant battle against ignorance. We're in a constant battle against ourselves. Uh, because the body doesn't, it doesn't want to work. It doesn't, the brain doesn't want to, you know, that's something you have to make yourself do and focus and be able to see, um, kind of beyond the, le the plane of existence that you're on. And I, I think that, you know, should, when there is first contact, uh, I can only imagine that it's going to be either very underwhelming for a lot of people because they're expecting ET. Um, or it's going to be, uh, and this is what I think it'll be, incredibly overwhelming to the point that our, our, our brains cannot even begin to comprehend uh, the level as to what we're witnessing. Yeah, that, I'm, I'm more of that opinion because um, one of the other things I recently learned, um, there's, a, there's a book out there called Fringology that I just read, and um, it, it deals with a lot of different topics, but there's one particular chapter <clears throat> that has to do with uh, our perception of reality and how and what reality is and how we go through our lives convinced that what you see is actually reality. But the reality of that is our brain constructs a model based on what we need to know for survival. You know, Absolutely. Like, you know, there's there's all sorts of things that we're not even perceiving that are around us that we our brain just doesn't put into the equation that doesn't put into the model, you know. You know, such as like not being able to see like infrared and all these other vibrations and all these other different levels, you know, of dimension that we're not perceiving because we don't need that. You know, like our, our, our brain is still out on the savanna, like running away from tigers and trying to forage for food. So all of these other stimuli don't really aren't relevant to our survival. So we don't perceive that. You know, when we take in through our eyes, our brain reconstructs into this movie and that's really how we experience reality. You know, well, I, I think that's the reason that you have a lot of the writers, like the beat writers, uh, you know, Crack and um, 
uh, Ginsburg and stuff like that who experimented, and not just them, but others as well, like Leary, who experimented, experimented with hallucinogenic drugs, um, uh, such, and I'm talking about the natural drugs like mushrooms and things of that nature. I mean, yeah, if you, a lot of people look at that, they're like, my God, they, they were the first to do that. That's incredibly not true. I mean, you have the Native Americans, uh, who are taking peyote. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, there's, there's a, there's a rich, I mean, even Christianity is based, is, you know, it's, it's pretty, I'm pretty sure Christianity is even based around psychedelics, really. You know, I mean, that it was, you know, there's some, you know, there's many, many parts even in the Bible that reference hallucinogenics, you know. Oh, absolutely. And that, that's the thing. I, I, it goes back to the fact that the, the human experience is one that is in constant search of the next level. Uh, and if it's not, I mean, you know, it should, I should, I should say it should be like that. Um, you know, it's, you know, you, it's, it has to be something where we are constantly, we are constantly trying to expand our understanding and consciousness of the world, which surrounds us and, and not limiting ourselves, uh, to what our brain, uh, is, is giving us and is feeding us. And I, I'm a huge uh, proponent of what you just said as far as, you know, the, the image that our brain creates for us, you know, we come into this world, you know, we're born and, um, immediately we, we uh, just, the immediate experiences that we have begin to kind of etch who we are and our, our consciousness and our character and, and our personality. But, uh, it's the fight against that. And it's the fight against basically what society feeds us that in my mind opens up, uh, the vision of what the actual human experience is. And I think you're exactly right when, when you say that we, you know, it's kind of, our brain so often it's, it's still, like you said, on the savannah. It's still running away from the tiger. It's still, you know, climbing the tree. It's still, you know, foraging for food. It's still in a kind of a survivalist mode. But I think if we stop and kind of extract those peripheral, um, I guess, almost um, uh, uh, vestigial needs, they're no longer needed. They're almost like an appendix to our consciousness. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's still there. Uh, but it no longer serves a purpose. You know, it's something that we have to kind of extract and move our our uh, our perceptions past. Yeah, exactly. And and recently, um, I heard a an interview with uh, the scientist or the science writer um, uh, Cara Cara Santa Maria, who is just I guess he enters into that sort of um, Hubert Sheldrake, um, Rupert Sheldrake. Richard Dawkins, um, you know, battle between, uh, you know, sort of consciousness versus being independent of your body and then your brain generating consciousness. Right. And one of the things I can say to her is like, you know, she's one of those, she's one of the, the people who are on the side of, oh yeah, you know, our brain generates consciousness. It's all just biology, you know? And the only thing I can say to her is like, are you sure? You know, I mean, because... You know, a lot of those sort of neurobiologists, not all of them, but some of, some of them, there's a split, apparently, believe that, you know, the brain, they've mapped all the brain, they understand brain function 100%, and that, you know, this is their, you know, their, their takeaway is that the brain generates consciousness. It's just a complicated, you know, chemical reaction. And the only thing I can say to that is like, you know, yeah, Newton, when he developed Newtonian physics, thought that was the end of the story, you know, and then like Einstein came along with relativity and, you know, sort of blew that away. And then there's, you know, quantum physics, which is even more of a far out, you know, right. borderline spiritual like trip than, than that. So to be like, so 
ironclad in your opinions about this stuff to me is like, you know, you know, at least like, I'm not saying it is or there isn't. I mean, I'm not, I have, I have been the last person who can make any, any knowledgeable, you know, informed opinion on that. I can just go with like, you know, sort of like a gut reaction to some of my experiences that I've had, you know, just with, you know, psychedelics or whatever. But, um, yeah, the only thing I can say to Richard Dawkins is like, are you, are you really sure that this is how you're going to roll? Because, you know, just in the last couple hundred years, things have been turned upside down. You know, there was a point where we thought the world was flat and the sun rotated around around the earth. And as yeah. far as I'm concerned, our understanding of consciousness is at that level of believing the world is flat still, you know. Well, you know, I think you're exactly right. And that, you know, not to not to beat a dead horse or kind of get on a hobby horse here, man. But, you know, that, that's the reason I, I'm not an atheist. Uh, I'm not. I'm actually an ardent agnostic. I'm, I have, to me, there's no greater comfort in the world than the question or the statement, I don't know. Um, I think when a person is able to admit that they don't know, that there are still questions, that, lo- that leaves room for exploration. When you know something, there's nothing. And in my mind, I mean, you know, and of course, you know, I live in the Bible Belt, so, I mean, obviously this is problematic for me living here. But, you know, there's there's two sides. I mean, there's two extremes. There's people that say, like you said, they're ironclad, ardently, there is a God, there, you know, you know, and here it is. There's no, you know, there's no going around it. There's absolutely a God. And then you have people on the other end of the spectrum, like your Dawkins, who say there absolutely is no God. Uh, it, that's ridiculous. You're ignorant if you think that. That's stupidity. That's da 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 da. And to me, it takes just as much faith, quote, and faith um, to negate something as it does to uh, possess something. Uh, to absolutely say that something is uh, absolutely real, it takes just as much faith as, as it does to say that it's not. So I'm firmly in the middle, and I'm firmly uh, along the lines of I don't know. And it's and, and in my mind, that leaves me so much room uh, to think for myself, to explore for myself, um, and to go along just with what you just said, to, to experience things uh, for myself. Uh, I, I think the human experience is... Uh, is something that doesn't get a lot of credit when it comes to our understanding of human evolution. Uh, I think a lot of people just see it as purely biological, and I think there are, there are things there are things that we just don't understand. There are way too many gaps, way too many gaps for us to completely say, "Okay, this is it. We've got it. We've got our understanding. Now let's go from here." Obviously, we don't. Obviously, we don't. I think uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you look at society. You look at what's happened just in the last half century uh, with weather, uh, with uh, society and culture's behavior. I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't know how you could possibly say that, you know, that that's the end all be all. And, you know, we are we are at the end of science. Hell, I don't even think we've written the pre, you know, I I don't think that the uh, prologue has been written for human understanding, quite, quite frankly. I agree with you completely, you know, and I think that as like science progresses, like, Science and like quote unquote spirituality are actually going to become more convergent. You know, I feel like, you know, there's there's like the pure pure spiritual proponents, you know, and then there's like the pure science people. And then I think as as like science progresses, I mean, just think about like the work in quantum physics, you know, and, and that that's some far out arcane knowledge, man. You know what I mean? It's like so incomprehensible and in, at times, but it's also like 
it's it's sort of pointing the direction that like it's not just like equations, you know what I mean? It's not just like you know these like indisputable laws that there's like gray areas and that under certain conditions, yeah, Newtonian physics definitely works. Like if you want to build a bridge across a river, then yeah, you're in the you're in the Newtonian world, you know. But if you want to travel, you know, interdimensionally or something, then yeah, your Newtonian physics aren't going to work anymore. You know what I mean? And I think that's sort of where we're going with science, you know, is like there, that it's not just like a yes or no situation. It's like, well, it depends on what the conditions are. Well, and as our, as our knowledge is localized and it is, I mean, you know, just like when Newton wrote, you know, his laws on physics, I mean, you know, you're talking about a guy who was, uh, he was a professed Christian. Uh, he believed that at the end of the day, everything was formulated and came from God. And he was a, you know, Judeo Christian beliefs. And, uh, he held to that belief, you know, very firmly. Um, fast forward, you know, three, four hundred years, and you've got Albert Einstein, who was, uh, very much in the field, very, leaning more closely towards, uh, atheist, uh, than, than agnostic. And then, of course, you go fast forward to Stephen Hawking, and I guess as our, as our understanding expands, um, for me, it goes back to the great quote by Voltaire, you know, judge a man not by his answers, but by his questions. And I, I think, you know, it kind of goes back to, I hate to bring it back to music again, but like I said, to me, the most fascinating aspect of what human beings do is, is not the destination. It's uh, what we did to get there. And I, I think it's the, the, the process and, and just kind of understanding um, the interweavings of, of what makes the universe the universe. It's incredibly fascinating, and it's something that, um, to me, like I said, I, I think if you can't find comfort in saying that you don't know, then um, that just introduces the concept of fear. And uh, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's just that there's a simplicity of saying, you know, uh, I'm not quite sure, but, you know, goddamn, I'm going to spend the rest of my life you know, trying to find out. Uh, that's that's the thing. You, there is no standing still. You know, it goes back to that. I think it was the Chomsky quote: "You can't be neutral on a moving train." And of course, you know that's. Of course, he wrote that as a political statement, but I think it, it stands true to uh, the human experience as well. You know, you're either sliding backwards or you're you know moving forwards. You, you, it's very, it's difficult even physically to stand still. You know, on a planet that's revolving and revolving around another uh, star, and, you know, as we revolve in the galaxy. I mean, it's just, things are cost, in constant movement, and there's there's constantly questions being raised. And I think for every answer that science offers up, there are, you know, a litany of more questions uh, that immediately come up uh, for us to ask and to seek understanding about. Yeah, man, I totally agree with that, you know. So uh, so what's uh, what do you got coming up with... Um with steel for brands, any 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 projects uh, in the horizon? Oh man, you know I uh, <laughs> I've got some. Uh, I, I need to, first of all, I need to hire a transcriptionist because oh, yeah. uh, goddamn. <laughs> oh yeah, it's brutal. <laughs> oh god, I, you know, and, and the thing about it is, is that I still use uh, my iPhone's recorder mm-hmm. to record conversations, which I. I guess is an okay thing, but I, I've got a few good things. I've got an interview with Ian MacKay. I'm, oh, wow. uh, I'm currently working on getting that transcribed. I've got um, an interview with um, uh, Mike uh, from uh, Yob that I'm working on, and uh, just uh, Jesus, a ton of things. I'm actually um, trying to find a time to uh, get with um, uh, 
Tom Gabriel Warrior. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he and I have been in contact. The crazy thing about this, and you'll, you'll appreciate this, I actually contacted um, – uh, it was kind of weird the way I came about getting his information. I was actually wanting an interview with the artist uh, that designed uh, the alien uh, costumes. Uh, um, my, my, I'm sorry, man. Uh, H.R. Geiger? Yeah, Geiger. Geiger yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was trying to get an interview with Geiger, and uh, he is apparently he's, he's incredibly old, and he's not doing a lot of interviews. But he said, hey, listen, if you want, uh, why don't you just talk to uh, this guy? Do you know who this is? And I was just like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know who that is. Uh, I'd love to talk with him. But I've got that lined up. Um, honestly, what my goal is in this year is to, is to kind of – and I've said it before, but I, I want to dig a little bit deeper and maybe go – even further underground than I, than I've gone. The the, um, the site kind of took off, uh, I guess, a lot more quickly than I expected it to, and I, I got a lot of people kind of throwing, you know, things at me and saying, "Hey, what about this band? What about this band? What about this band? What about this band?" And I, you know, it was very overwhelming, you know, because I was just like, well, "Jesus Christ, I, I don't have." I mean, of course, I have a full time job. Yeah. I was like, you know, I don't even know how to begin to to explore, uh, to explore this, uh, or to even, uh, begin to, you know, go into it. But I, I guess for this year, what I really want to do is a lot more writing and kind of a, a, an exploration uh, of the consciousness of the genre itself and kind of explore the aesthetic. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully, and I, and I say this with great fear and trepidation, um, to get, uh, other musicians and writers to write for the site as well. Um, I, I kind of put it, uh, of course I've kind of, I've kind of semi asked you, uh, cause I know, but I know you're incredibly busy. Um, but I, I've asked like Steve Von Till, um, I've asked, um, I think Andrew is actually going to be, uh, writing for me. Yeah. Andrew mentioned something about that too. Yeah. That's great. Definitely. He's going to be writing. Um, so I, I kind of want to, you know, I, I, I like the, the interview aspect. I love doing interviews just because I love talking to, uh, of, honestly, I can I can honestly tell you from every uh, artist and musician that I've spoken to, I've, I've yet to have a single bad experience. Um, I just it's just been overwhelmingly uh, pleasurable. I mean, these, these these people are wonderful, and not that I expect anything different. You know, you just hear you hear rumors of uh, you know the, the whole aspect. Oh my God, you're going to talk to a rock star. You know, quote rock star. They're going to you know they're going to treat you like a piss on or something like that. But that's never happened at all. You know, it's just these are regular people and yeah. doing what they love to do. So I honestly want to just, I want to dig deeper and go probably a little bit more underground. And um, I, I have a feeling I'm going to lose some readers just because I'm not going to be doing so many interviews. I'm actually going to be focusing more on the uh, art and the aesthetic of the, the, the process. So, but to me, it's going to be doing something that I love. So I'm really excited about it. No, that's great, man. Yeah. I mean, in, in general, I've always had good experiences doing interviews. There's only been a couple that I thought were, um, were kind of like, you know, and it wasn't for any of this. It was for the AOL site I wrote for a couple of years ago. Um, that noise creep site, which, uh, I think Huffington, yeah. Huffington Post took over all the, you know, the editorial portion of that. So, um, yeah, I did an interview with this band and I felt like they were just giving me these sort of rote answers, you know, like, you know, what are your influences? And they're, you know, they're like a metal band, but they were like, oh, you know, outlaw country or something like that. And I'm like, all right, dude, you know, like the whole time it just felt like it was like a put on, you know, it wasn't like this honest, you know, answer of, well, we're really into this, you know, 
And it just felt like the very generic answer Q&A session with them. And that was like probably the only time I was really disappointed in uh, in my responses or, you know, the outcome of, of some of the interviews that I've done. You know, one of the most far out ones I did was, uh, was the interview Keith Morris, man. That was like... Oh, my God. That was like one of the first things I've ever done, man, for Brooklyn Vegan. And um, <sighs> talking to that dude was, first of all, I was like super nervous because Keith Morris was in Black Flag and Black Flag is probably one of the single most influential forces on my entire, you know, just my whole approach to doing doing music and, and living and the way I do the band and the way I, you know, try to do, you know, just the, my approach to everything, you know. So, you know, meeting him in person was like a really kind of daunting thing. And then you, you don't really interview that dude. You just sort of like let him do his thing and you kind of corral like the answers and edit it into something that comes close to like what you wanted to, you know, achieve with it, you know, and that, you know, it was, um, you know, like maybe we just started talking and I was like, man, I just, I just really just got to hit play and record because this guy's giving me so much information here. And some of it had apps, you know, some of it was like tangents and non sequiturs, but a lot of it was like really interesting stuff too, you know? So that was, that, that's the thing. I mean, like, I, I don't know when I, <laughs> when I first started out, like with Silver Brains, and I, and I, I think I even told you this because you were one of my earliest, um, interviews, uh, and I couldn't believe I'd scored a Tunes interview, like, you know, in the first month. I was just like giddy, if I can go ahead and say that. I was just like, you know, fucking stoked. But, you know, I, I, I went into it every time, like before I made the call or before I knew the interview was going to start, I was like, Jesus Christ, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> and, I'll tell you what, this is, uh, you know, I, I don't think I've ever told anybody this. My, my third interview that I did was actually with Michael Girard. Oh, wow. It's, you know, and it, I, dude, I'm just an English teacher. I don't, you know, I, I like to read. I, I'm kind of, I, I live a pretty humble lifestyle. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not high profile at all. And, you know, I got the interview surprisingly with him. And I, you know, when they, when his uh, PR person came across and was like, hey, look, Michael wants to do the interview before they go on tour. And I was just like, seriously? I mean, you know, that was my Because I didn't expect to get, you know, because, I mean, I, I had, like, one interview on my plate, maybe two, and and I was just like, okay. And that, to me, going into it is the same thing. I just hit record and just kind of sat back and let him talk. And it was the same It was the same experience with Buzz uh, from the Melvins. Uh, it was the same experience with Ian uh, from Fugazi. You know, I, I, I was just... I, I honestly, I found that it's best just to sit back and shut up and just kind of let them say what they got to say because I, I feel like the, the more that I talk, uh, the less intelligent the conversation will be. So I just try to sit in the passenger seat and let them take it, you know, take control of it. Yeah, I mean that's actually um, I, I've experienced the the, the over talkative interviewer on the other on the being interviewed side, you know, like. Some dude is trying to like put his ego for first and isn't really interested in what you're trying to tell, you know, what story you're trying to tell. And uh, what comes to mind is um, this guy that interviewed us, me and Bobby from uh, 16 uh, at that show in Brooklyn that you were at. Yeah. Yeah, this dude rolls up and he wants to like, you know, doesn't really, isn't really interested in like what I, you know, either one of us had to say. He just wanted to put forth this kind of, uh, you know, he wanted to frame all of his questions in some couched in like some clever, you know, 
ego trip, you know what I mean? And I was just like, really? That's, you know, that, that's, that's the kind of questions you want to ask, you know, like, you know, and I was just like, I don't think the, I don't even think the guy had gotten anything useful out of it. I don't even think the, cause like typically when relapse sets up interviews for us, when it, when it surfaces, they send us a link, you know, like, here, check it out. This is up. You know, you can post it or do whatever you want. And that guy, I never got anything back. I think it was for Hales and Horns or whatever like that. I think that's like a website or some shit, you know. And and um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that I don't think the guy even used what we said to him because he just set this tone, you know. And I was just like, all right, dude, you know, it's the last day of tour, and uh, you know, I just want to get some food and like hang out and uh, starting off like on this like this real, real like negative like ego trip. And I was just like, all right, man, like. Those are the kinds of questions you're going to ask. These are the kind of answers you're going to get, you know? <laughs> well, I, I tell you, um, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story. This actually uh, it, it involves our mutual friend, Peter Ferris. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was right, I think it, I went to the Sun Show in Atlanta, and Peter was there, and I told him, because, yeah, I, told, I was really nervous about the site because I was like, I don't want to appear like one of these, I don't want to be just another fan sign, you know, because there's... I mean, God, there's, they're a dime a dozen. And, you know, and I'd already had a couple of experiences with, uh, uh with press agents and PR people, uh, who shall remain, you know, unnamed. Uh, but, uh, you know, just, just kind of asking me, who the fuck are you basically? And I, you yeah. know, had to be like, well, I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, and I, I don't really have an experience, but I, you know, this is what I want to do. I, you know, I'd love to talk to this band. I'd love to talk to these guys. You know, they, they seem, you know, I, I've, Love this band. You don't want to come across as a fanboy or anything like that. But yeah. I, um, I was talking to Peter. We were standing outside for the Sun Show, and um, it was the funniest thing. Uh, he said, uh, "He goes, well, who are you interviewing next?" And I was like, "Well, I'm talking to Mike from Tombs this weekend." And um, he said, "Oh, really?" He said, "That guy's intense." <laughs> like I was like, "Really?" I said, okay. He goes, no, I mean, like, he's really intense. He said, I've heard a story, and this is all he said. This is all he said. He goes, I've heard a story involving a sock and a um, pool ball. He said, and that's the only thing I know. He said, there's a, a bloody sock with a pool ball in it. He said, when Mike was in his teenage years. And I was like, Jesus Christ. So I, I just was like, all right, I'm not going to bring that up in the interview, but uh, holy shit. So I kind of went in, and I was like, oh, man, <laughs> I've got to be careful what I have to say and, and the questions I ask, you know. But uh, I, I don't know. It's just like when you talk about like the the pretentiousness of of press people and stuff like that. That I, I don't know, man. I, I don't. I really don't get it. Like the egocentrism. I think a, a big part of it uh, for me to stay grounded is just to realize that at the end of the day, I really am just a fan. I'm just a huge fan of the music. And I just want to, you know, I want to write about it. I want to listen to it. And I want to offer up, you know, as best I can, you know, a different perspective for people. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, if, I, if I'm not doing that, if I feel that I'm not as passionate about it as I was, you know, when I first started out, then I'm just going to hang it up right then and there. You know, that to me is, that's just kind of my drive. And I, I really, I guess the only my only Achilles heel is that I don't take no for an answer. I try my, my damnedest not to take no for an answer. And that's gotten me into a little hot water every once in a while. But Jay, uh, Jay Newman, who you know, you know, oh, from, yeah. uh, unearthly, yeah, uh, Jay, great guy. You know, I did the interview with him for Serpentine and, uh, he, uh, 
one of the best pieces of advice for me, he was like, just, he goes, fuck all that press stuff. Just, uh, just message them on Facebook. Yeah. Go email and message the band. He goes, just do that. And, you know, don't give up. And that, that was a whole thing. And honestly, that's how I got, uh, the enslaved interview that I got. Nice. Uh, that, that's coming up here in the next month or so. I just, honestly, I sent them about 10 or 15 emails and just would not let up until I heard a no. You know, that, that was kind of like, until I hear back, like, please leave us the fuck alone. I'm just going to keep sending an email once every two weeks. And, um, that, it kind of, it came to fruition. So, uh, by, by sheer, uh, will, you know, so, but that, that that's, that's kind of my philosophy. And I'm, I'm like you, uh, um, Black Flag had a huge influence and Henry Rollins, uh, business model of just basically, Fuck whatever, fuck what everyone else is doing. I'm going to do it my way, and I'm going to do it no matter what anyone else says. Is kind of my, um, kind of my philosophy on it. Yeah, I mean, right. just just will manifesting. You know, that's really always been my like my trip. You know, I mean, I, I even before Rollins, like when I was you know a young kid, I used to wrestle and you know stuff like that. Is like really, it's it's taking like raw material and just going through a process. You know, and, may, and listening to someone else tell you what to do, sort of, you know, or, or following a set, of, a set of procedures that you know will give you a certain result, and just sticking to it and doing it, you know, until you improve. You know, and that's really always been my approach with everything, man, like even playing guitar and stuff. It's like, you know, I, I don't really consider, I've never really, I'm not like some shredder guitar player, like I don't really, you know, I, I just from constant rehearsal and playing have I ever even gotten to where I am right now as like a pretty, you know, meager, <laughs> you know, entry level guy on the, on the instrument really. And, um, I mean, Garrett, our, our new guitar player is like a legitimate, like musician, like serious guitarist, you know what I mean? So when I hear him play, I'm just like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm just like some hack, you know what I mean? But, but that's what I mean though. It's like, you know, but that doesn't invalidate everything that I've done either. It's just like, you know, you, you want to do something, you just do it. So it's like with the web, you know, doing steel for brains, it's like you got to just put everything else aside and just keep, like, hacking away at it, you know, and then you'll get some success. So you'll achieve something, you know, and just – there's, like, that book, Outliers, you know, that's, like, about extraordinary people and how they, like, you know, achieve these certain goals and everything. And, you know, there's, like, that 10,000-hour rule where it's, like, if you put 10,000 hours into something, you become an expert at it. Yeah. So I, I always got some kind of solace in that, knowing that it's like, you know what, man, if I just like just show up, put the hours in, I'll get better. I might not become an expert, but at least by attempting to become an expert, I'll at least be proficient at it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And one one thing that drives me uh, kind of just in regards to that is kind of it was funny when I did the interview with Ian McKay, he he actually, at the end of the interview, he gave me advice. He was like, you know, look, this is what you can improve on. This is what you can do better. And it was just like so good. And, you know, a lot of people would take that and be really offended. Like they would be like, what the fuck? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the interviewing. I'm, you know, he was just like, look, he was just approaching from the standpoint of I'm another guy. I'm just another fucking guy. My name's in the phone book. I'm not anybody special. You know, you're doing me a service by interviewing me. He said, you know, that's, that's a compliment to me. He said, so just, you know, approach it from the standpoint of having a conversation. And that's really what I, you know, kind of use as my drive and something that I think that would do a lot of people that do interviews and a lot of people that just uh, try to, you know, explore 
uh, different aspects of any music journalism. And we're doing great, a great good just to, just to kind of, uh, forego the whole egocentricism of it and just realize that you're talking to another human being who's had a human experience, who's, you know, undoubtedly gone through some very similar things as you. Um, they just, uh, just because of the fact that they may have their name on a, on a, on a placard or a, on a billboard or whatever, doesn't make them a, a different at all in any aspect. It's just, you know, you're, you're coming out of two human experiences. And that's the reason I, I just recently, or not recently, but in the last, you know, four or five months uh, since the site came up, I've really basically stopped using the word interview because I felt like interview was very um, was a very one-sided uh, exercise, and I thought that conversation was something that was uh, more of a sharing of information and a sharing of experiences between uh, the speaker and the listener and, and vice versa, and uh, that there wasn't any specific role. It was just two people having a conversation about a common uh, a common thing that they had uh, together, uh, something that they liked uh, together. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that's me as big drive. That's what I love about podcasting so much is that it really is a conversation because, you know, when you, when you read an interview with somebody, there's the whole edit. I mean, you know yourself now that, you know, you're engaged in doing that kind of work. You know, there's so much that gets um, edited and smoothed over, like just for the presentation purpose of putting it in a text form, you know. But when you're listening to a conversation between people, it's it's the actual, uh, you know, sort of uh, dialogue, you know. And I find that that the subtleties and that really add a lot to you gaining an understanding of some subject or a person or whatever. You know, I really enjoy that. And I think that just like the, you know, we were talking about, you know, an interview and all these like rigid rules of doing things. And I feel like one of the things about the 21st century is this sort of erosion of like, that paradigm, you know, of, of sort of old ways of thinking of how things have to be and a newer method is, a, is arising out of all that sort of stuff, you know, yeah. and, and have you ever seen that movie Looper? Yes. Yeah. There's one thing, I mean, I like that movie. It's, you know, it, it touches on all this, all the stuff that I love. Like I love, you know, science fiction. It has like a comic book element to it. You know, there's like, you know, there are times I was thinking, I'm like, yeah, man, this is like some, some X-Men, like Professor Xavier style stuff. And like, you know, there's some time travel involved and it was really interesting. And there's like some cool, like, you know, paradoxical uh, stuff that was uh, introduced by that film. But on a, on a really pragmatic level, there was this thing that the Jeff Daniels character said, because he's a man from the future and he comes back to talk to, um, you know, whatever, I can't remember that dude's name, Joe, Joe Gordon-Levitt, that character where he's wearing a tie and <laughs> Jeff Daniels is like, Oh, I can't, I, I don't believe you guys are still doing that. You know, I can't, you know, when, when's, when are you going to be finished with wearing those things? And I'm just like, you know what, man, I think about that too, because, you know, I take a train into this, into New York city every day to go to work. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, I never, I, I don't wear a tie. Like I, that's not my trip. You know what I mean? And, I look around and I'm like, when, when are we going to give this up? You know, this whole, like, I'm a serious guy. So I got to wear a tie and some fucking, you know, wear some loafers, some shoes where I can't run away from somebody if they're chasing me, you know, something like that. And that's like, like, you know, when, when are we going to get over this like paradigm of, of this is what a serious person looks like. You know, I got to, you know, clean shaven and I got a tie on, you know, I have these like tweed pants and like some sensible shoes. And, uh, this is how I express myself to the world as being a serious person, you know, and that, you know, that sort of thing 
to me seems like a very a very early 20th century idea that sort of has like leached over into this like new world that we're in you know and um you know it's like you got to put on this costume to go and do your thing but that's not really who you are or how you dress you know what i mean and uh yeah yeah it blows my mind you know sort of I, I wear I wear a tie and I do because I'm the, the department chair now and I, I it's funny because like uh, on Mondays or Thursdays I wear my you know my shirt my tie and my slacks I will say this I um, I'm a Doc Martin freak and I have been since the early '90s because I was briefly into Alice in Chains and all that and I, I don't think I, I think the only holdover from that is the fact that I still wear the Doc Martens so I've got about eight pairs of those but uh, and that's just in case I have to. Uh, beat anybody's ass at work <laughs> I should run away or kick their ass so because uh, they're steel toed but yep. I've got that but it's funny because you know my students and my faculty will see me you know during the week and I've got you know I, you know, I try to trim the beard up and everything like that and of course I you know I, I, I try to look as decent as possible but on Fridays you know I wear jeans and I've got my uh, regular shirt and I've got my sleeves rolled up and of course my arms are pretty much covered in tattoos and Immediately, immediately, students that don't know me or faculty that don't know me, they see me, and it's like they see me in a completely different light. And they, they're, they're like, "Whoa, whoa! I didn't know you. I didn't know you had tattoos. What are you like a, a punk? Are you like? I mean, like, immediately, there's this whole litany of things that they think or try or have you know conceptualized about people with like their arms sleeved up in tattoos and whatnot. It's just funny to me, you know. I, I it's kind of, it's basically the same thing when. I, I did a work day at, at, at work this summer, and I, I had shorts on uh, at the school, and I've got a, a gigantic Baphomet tattoo on my left uh, left leg. Right. huge. And <laughs> I got a lot of interesting comments about that. I mean, yeah. You know, most people see me in a suit or a tie, you know, and so they, I, I guess it really kind of, their brain doesn't know how to, how to function with that because, like you said, it's a holdover from the early 20th century, and, it, and it's, it's like that. It's like the old racist uncle that's about to die and, you know, that's still in the family and he's still at family gatherings and he's still trying to be relevant. But it's just kind of at this point, it's kind of a moot point. So, yeah, you know, eventually I think people will uh, give less of a fuck about things of that nature because, honestly, it's not that important. You know, I, I've, I've got more people on my staff and faculty now with tattoos and piercings than you know, I've ever seen, you know, working in the education industry in, in years now. So, and I actually think it's a great thing. It's a positive thing because it kind of takes away the stigma that unfortunately is still, still attached to that. Yeah. So, yeah. Deb, I definitely think that's decreasing as time goes on. Cause you see like people that, you know, are very much middle class, like middle of the road, generic, you know, average people with like tattoos and like, you know, nose rings or whatever and stuff like that. You know, and, and where like 20 years ago, that would have been a completely alienating, marginalizing thing for people to do, you know? Well, yeah. And my, <laughs> my dad is a Vietnam. A, um, he's, uh, he worked for the CIA and worked in black ops when Damn. he was in Vietnam. And I, man, I've got Jesus Christ. Growing up, I heard all sorts of stories. Uh, he, he basically had my brother and I doing RTs and PTs, well, like from my earliest memory in the backyard. We were like trained in hand-to-hand combat, really? trained in marksmanship and stuff wow. like that. And he, uh, his statement to me when I got my very first tattoo was, uh, you know, the only people who get tattoos are uh, uh, sailors and they get drunk. 
And I was like, Daddy, you know, that's not really true anymore. That might have been true like, you know, 100 years ago, but it's, <laughs> it's you, know, you know, Aunt so-and-so has a tattoo. What the hell does it matter? You know, so it's just, it's funny to see that kind of old school manner of thinking kind of fade away, you yeah. know. But, but yeah, I mean, yeah, my dad's an interesting man for sure, man. I, I've got stories of wow. just his theories and everything. It's very fascinating. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan, a big proponent of learning people knowing how to defend themselves and, you know, getting involved with organized, you know, fight training and martial arts and stuff like that. I think that could be nothing but positive for, for a young man to really get involved with anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, and the funny thing is, my dad, he, um, he, God, man, he, uh, he, he taught us hand-to-hand combat and also had a sister. He taught her that, too. Um, because he felt every, every one of us needed to learn. And, um, he also taught us how to change a flat tire by basically going out and letting the air out of one of our tires, uh, just on a random morning, a school morning, just let the air out of our tires and left for work. Wow. And left a, a window that was like, um, see what you can do. Damn. And it was like, we had to figure out for ourselves how to change the tire. And then, you know, he taught us how to change oil, change brakes and, water pump and all of that. So, I mean, we had to learn by, <laughs> you know, emergency experience. So it was, it was kind of an immediacy uh, that we had to learn by. So uh, I owe that, I owe a lot of what I know as far as like hand to hand stuff and just, you know, manual labor to my dad, just being, you know, basically almost borderline nuts. But I mean, you know, he, he's a good guy and uh, he's, he's a mess, but yeah, he, uh, he definitely was set and is uh, very much still set in his ways as far as a lot of that goes. Awesome, man. Well, uh, I'd like to thank you, Jonathan. Um, you know, it's definitely a lot of good stuff we talked about in this, like, you know, hour and a half or whatever. And, um, you know, once again, it just uh, you're doing great work, man, in the Steel for Brains. And anyone who listens to this, I urge you guys to check out his site. And uh, where, where can people connect with you? Uh, you know, what's your, your website, Twitter, all that sort of stuff? Uh, stillforbrains.com is the uh, website. Uh, I'm on Twitter, you know, twitter.com backslash stillforbrains and facebook.com backslash stillforbrains. So, uh, if you just type, uh, stillforbrains into Google, it will lead you all down every single path you can find me on for sure. Awesome. A lot of exciting things coming up here in the next couple of weeks. So it'll, it'll be very interesting. All right, man. So, uh, you know, have a great week and, uh, you know, we'll be in touch, man. All right? Awesome. Take Thanks care. Thanks so much. Take care, bud. And there you have it, Jonathan Dick. I'd like to thank you guys for uh, hanging in there and listening to the, all these podcasts, reading the blog, and, uh, you know, sending along the kind words. It's much appreciated. If uh, care, you care to follow me on Twitter, you can reach me at at MikeHillHQ. That's at MikeHillHQ. And the website address is www.everythingwentblackmedia.com. Also, uh, once again, I'm using the great Hans Zimmer piece, Gotham Rises, from the Dark Knight Rises soundtrack as our uh, intro music. And uh, this time around, I'm going to take you out with Planks into the Nothingness Within. Mm-hmm.